You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. I remember coming here, uh, my wife Leslie, by the way, is here with me today, and, and uh, I spoke uh, at Passion City, I think in 2014 or something, and uh, I was so moved by what I experienced in the worship time and in the demeanor of the staff and, and the volunteers and people who serve in the core of the church, and I made a comment, kind of a side comment, uh, before my message, I said, you know, when I think of Passion City Church... I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, where he talked about a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And what was he saying? And not that Passion City is necessarily on a physical hill, but I think of Passion City because it's a church that proclaims the gospel, that proclaims a message of love and grace and hope and redemption, not just in this little neighborhood, in this community, in this city, but really worldwide. And so I think of this um, church as the city on the hill. And then I thought, well, maybe it'd be a good idea to take a look at that whole passage um, on this visit. And so I want to take you back 2,000 years when Jesus was standing on a hillside and he was looking into the eyes of people of that day. But I really believe by extension, he was looking down through history and he was looking at you today. And this is what he said. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But but you, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine among others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What did he mean by those metaphors of salt and light? I think he was saying this. I think he was saying, look, if you're going to be a follower of mine, I want you to live lives like salt that that make people thirst for God. I want you to live lives like light that shine my message of hope and grace and love and redemption. Just shine that message into dark areas of despair. And the question I want to ask this morning is this, what would it look like in the 21st century for you and me to be stronger salt and brighter light? What would that look like? Well, my buddy Mark Middleberg and I wrote a book about this, and we thought long and hard about the title of the book, and we decided to call it The Unexpected Adventure. Because we really think if three things are true of you, if you're motivated to engage with people in spiritual conversations, if you make yourself available to do that, if you're prepared to do that, you never know what's going to happen. Could start out to be an average and routine day, but God might open a door for you to have a conversation. A conversation could change somebody's life and change their eternal destination. That's the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. I mean, I've seen it in my own life, crazy things take place. I remember, um, you know, I, I was an atheist for much of my life. I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper. I came to faith because I spent two years investigating the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And then after a, a while, after I came to, uh, to Jesus, I felt God's leading to resign my 
journalism career and take a 60% pay cut and become part of a local church where I could spend the best hours of my day telling people about Jesus. And so I'm working at this church and I said one day to some of the staff, I said, would you all be interested in going downtown Chicago where um, I had my office at the federal courthouse and I covered all the crime syndicate trials, the political corruption cases and so forth. Uh, Would you be interested in doing that? They said, yeah, that'd be fun. So we go downtown Chicago, we go to the federal courthouse, the elevator takes us up to the 21st floor where my office had been in the press room. The elevator doors open up and there standing in the hallway is a guy who used to be a competitor of mine from another news organization. Tough guy, tough Chicago reporter. You know, you got the cigar, but you don't light it. You just gnaw on it, you know. <laughs> and he saw him, he said, Strobel, how the blank are you, son of a blankety blank? I said, I'm doing great. He said, Strobel, I haven't seen you in years. Are you still writing for that blankety blankety Chicago Tribune, that blankety blankety piece of blankety blank? I said, actually, John, I've had a big change in my life. I've, I've become a Christian, and I'm a pastor now. <laughs> and he looked at me like the cigar almost fell out of his mouth. And all he could say was, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> and I said, well, John, you don't have to be. And God gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with him. I didn't expect this to happen. It was out of the blue. It was an unexpected adventure. But this is where the action is in the Christian life. When we live on this evangelistic edge, when we're looking for ways to share this message of hope with people we love, um, all other aspects of our Christian life get elevated. Our prayer life takes on a whole new dimension. Because we're praying, God, give me the words. I don't know what to say. (laughs) Give me the courage, right? It's when our Bible study takes on a whole new dimension. Because we're not just looking for abstract theological truths. We're looking for something that might help us reach a friend. It's when our worship takes on a whole new dimension because we're worshiping the God of the second chance who loves our lost friends more than we do. It's when our dependence on God is at its greatest because we know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves lead anybody to faith. I mean, this this is where the action is in the Christian life. So I'm thinking, how can we position our lives? How can we live our lives to experience these unexpected adventures? So I started to think, I thought, well, what if Jesus physically lived in my house? What if for a couple of months, you know, Jesus hung out with Leslie and me, and we could watch him as he would interact with neighbors, as he would go to the grocery store, as he would go to the hardware store, and we could observe him on how he was salt and light to people he encountered. And so as I studied the life of the master, I learned so much. I just want to share with you three things that I I took away from that experience that we can implement in our lives starting today to be stronger salt and brighter light. The first thing I think I'd learned from Jesus is before he would talk to his neighbor about their heavenly father, he would talk to his heavenly father about his neighbor. He would pray. Right, of course, before Jesus embarked on anything of significance, he brought it to the Father in prayer. In fact, you ever thought about the fact that Jesus' prayers for spiritually lost people continued right up until his final gasps on the cross? That when you read the account of the crucifixion in the original Greek, one of the things you notice is the imperfect tense of the Greek suggests that Jesus didn't just say it once, but he kept praying it, he kept repeating it 
all through the torture of the crucifixion, perhaps while the nails are being driven through his hands and the nails are being driven through his feet, he kept praying, he kept repeating, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' prayers for people so spiritually depraved that they were torturing the death of the Son of God, his prayers continued until his final gasps on the cross. And as the British pastor John Stott said, in light of that, how can we justify not praying consistently and fervently and expectantly for lost people in our lives? Now, I know theologically, I can't force someone against their will to get on their knees and receive Jesus by my prayers. I get that. But you know what? I'm just naive enough to believe the words of James, who says the prayers of righteous people make a difference. Because I've seen it. I've, against all odds, I've seen it time after time. I remember once um, a church where I was a teaching pastor up in Chicago, we were doing a baptism service. And by God's grace, we were baptizing 500 new believers that day. And so we explained the gospel and, and how these people had come to faith, not on anything they've earned, but received this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for us on the cross when he died as our substitute to pay for all of our sins. And these people had received this free gift of God's grace. And we explained all that. And we said, by the way, if you want to bring somebody up when you're baptized, maybe a spouse or maybe the person who led you to the Lord, that's fine. So this woman comes up to me to be baptized. She's about 60, 65 years old. She comes up. I said, you're here to be baptized. She said, yes, I am. I said, have you received Jesus as your forgiver and your leader? She said, with all my heart. And I was just getting ready to baptize her. And I didn't usually do this, but I, I felt led. I, I turned to the man. I said, well, excuse me, sir. Are you her husband? Because there was a man with her. He was a tough looking guy. You know, probably 70 years old, kind of wiry, kind of leathery, kind of construction worker type. Probably didn't even use a hammer, just a nail, you know, just a fist, a nail. You know what I'm saying? He was a tough guy. So I turned to him. I said, excuse me, sir, are you her husband? He said, well, yes, I am. I said, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And he glared at me and his face kind of screwed up. And I honestly thought he was going to hit me. But then he burst into tears in front of thousands of people. He said, no, I haven't, but I want to right now. All right, time out. Can we do this? Okay, great. So this guy in front of thousands of people repents of his sin, receives forgiveness through Christ, and I baptize him and his wife together. But, but then after the service, I'm walking out of the platform. This other woman I didn't know comes running up to me, throws her arms around me. She's weeping and sobbing. And I said, who are you? And what's going on? She said... That's my uh, sister who you just led to the Lord and uh, you just baptized. And that's my brother-in-law who you just led to the Lord and baptized. She said, I have been praying for that man for nine long years. And for nine years, I've seen not one glimmer of interest in God, but look what God did today. Yes. Yes. And you know what my first thought was? There was a woman who was glad she didn't stop praying in year eight. Here's a question. Who have you stopped praying for? Who is it that you used to lift up to God? You used to, maybe it's a, someone you went to school with, maybe an old neighbor, maybe a family member. And for a long time, you would lift them up to the throne of grace. But then you never say this, but the attitude, yeah, they're never going to come to faith. We kind of give up on them. And I think that woman would say, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying.
In fact, here's a convicting question somebody asked me once. I don't know if you'll find it convicting, but I did. Here's the question. What if tonight you go home, you're alone in your bedroom, and Jesus physically appears to you? And what if he looks at you tonight and he says, I am going to answer every single prayer that you prayed last week. If he said that to you tonight, would there be anybody new in the kingdom of God tomorrow? Are we praying? Are we praying consistently, fervently, expectantly for spiritually confused people in our lives? People we love. We want them to have the hope and the, the, the joy of knowing the Savior of the universe. So here's my challenge. What if we all just brought into our minds right now somebody in our life, maybe the one we've stopped praying for, someone in our circle of influence who we love and, and, and we want to see, enjoy a relationship with God the way that we do, to bring a picture of that person in your mind and to commit and say, you know what, between now and Easter, I'm going to pray for that person every single day. Maybe for one minute every day between now and Easter. And one of the things to pray about is an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation with that person and to invite them to come to Passion City Church on Easter. Because I know when I was an atheist, if I was ever going to go to church, it was going to be on Christmas or Easter, right? So can we do that? Can we commit to praying for that one lost person every day between now and Easter and seeing if God might open up an opportunity to invite them here? Because who knows what God might do if they were to come to this place? I think if Jesus lived in my house, first thing he'd do is he would pray for his neighbors. Second thing I think if Jesus lived in my house is he would let all the neighbors know my door is always open for questions. Got a doubt? Got a hesitation? Come on in. Bring the Starbucks. We'll sit on the floor. We'll talk about it. I mean, can you think of any example in the New Testament where Jesus slam dunked anybody that came to him with a sincere question? I can't. In fact, my favorite example along these lines is John the Baptist. If, if anybody should have been absolutely convinced of the identity of Jesus being the Son of God, it was John the Baptist. John once pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens open up. He heard the voice of the Father say, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus and said, I have seen and I testify, this is the Son of God. But then what happens? He gets arrested. He gets thrown in prison. Question, what happens to a lot of us when tough times come? Doubts begin to creep in, don't they? And that's what happened to John. So he's sitting in prison. He's, now he's got some hesitations. Now he's got some questions. Dare I even suggest that he had some doubts. So what did he do? Did he wallow in that? Did he let that eat away at his soul? No. He got a couple friends together. He said, look, track down Jesus and just ask him point blank once and for all, are you the one we've been waiting for or are we to wait for somebody else? So his buddies tracked down Jesus. Hey, Jesus, yeah, you know John. Well, he got busted. And now he's freaking out. So would you just tell us once and for all, are you the one? We've been waiting for, we'd wait for somebody else. Now here's the deal. How does Jesus react to this? Does he get angry? Does he, how dare John of all people have the temerity to dare express a hesitation about my identity? No. He says to those followers of John, 
In Luke 7, verse 22, quote, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, go back to John. Tell him about the evidence that you've seen with your own eyes that convinces you that I am the one I claim to be. So they go back and they tell John, but here's the deal. Has this now disqualified John from any role in the kingdom of God because he dared to ask a question? No. It's after this incident that Jesus gets up before a group and says, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. John, the guy who dared to express a doubt. Friends, can I tell you something? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or even if you're not, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions as long as you do what John did and you seek answers. Um, And you know, the Bible tells every follower of Jesus in 1 Peter 3.15 that all of us should be always prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. In other words, most of us have friends, relatives, neighbors, colleagues at work who have spiritual sticking points, questions, doubts that are holding them up in their journey toward God. That's okay. But we need to help them if we can, maybe to get resolution of those issues that they might find, be able to make some progress uh, uh, toward Jesus. Because so many of our friends just have one or two sticking points holding them up. I have a friend, uh, she's a famous scholar. Um, her name is Nancy Piercy. Listen to what she wrote. In studies asking why young people left their family religion, their most frequent response was unanswered doubts and questions. The researchers were surprised. They expected to hear stories of broken relationships and wounded feelings. But the top reason given by young adults was that they did not get answers to their questions. That's a tragedy. This is why apologetics, Christian apologetics is so important. Apologetics is a word, doesn't mean to apologize. It's from the Greek word. It means to give a defense, to give reasons for why we believe what we believe. And what apologetics does is it grounds the believer because it gives us confidence in our faith, not just understand what we believe, but why we believe it. Um, And it gives us confidence to be able to share it. But it's also important for non-believers. I mean, I think in my own case, as an atheist for much of my early life. Um, and when my wife, Leslie, became a Christian, it prompted me to try to you know, rescue her from this cult to, um, <laughs> to disprove the Christian faith. And I spent two years investigating the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I was blown away. I was surprised in the end to find the evidence supports the Christian belief that Jesus didn't just claim to be the son of God, but he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. Uh, And I ended up coming to faith. So apologetics is important for the believer and it's important for the non-believer. But here's the good news. Friends, we have a defensible faith. We have a faith that stands up to the toughest objections. I've seen this a thousand times. I remember when I was an atheist, one of my buddies was one of the most famous atheists in America. He was um, the national spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated. That was his job. And we were friends from my atheist days. So then I come to faith, 
and we start to have these little discussions, you know, and sometimes with a little argument, and sometimes it got a little heated, but it was fun, and we loved each other, and I cared about him, and I wanted him to, to meet the Jesus who changed my life and my eternity. And so we got in these little discussions, and then one day, he looked at me, said, Strobel, you Christians are all alike. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, you'll give the case for Christ. You'll give the evidence for God, but you won't then give the evidence against God and just let people make up their own minds. I said, oh yeah, I'll tell you what. You go find the smartest atheist on planet earth and I will fly him to the church where I'm a teaching pastor and I will allow him to stand on our platform and proclaim the case for atheism. But I'm gonna get a Christian. And that Christian's gonna present the case for Christ. And then he'll debate your atheist. We'll just let people make up their own minds. He said, you wouldn't do that. I said, oh yeah, we shook on it. My very next thought, I should have asked the senior pastor if this is okay. (laughs) Too late, too late. This ball started rolling. This thing took on a life of its own. This is back in the early 90s. Nobody was doing these kind of things back then. I mean, um, Chicago Tribune did four advanced articles on this debate. Talk radio, talk television, buzzing about the debate. Why? Because the church said, we're not afraid to have an intellectual shootout. We're not afraid to put our faith to the test. Pretty soon I started to get phone calls from radio stations around the country. Can we broadcast this debate live? Okay. Pretty soon we had 117 radio stations, literally coast to coast, going to broadcast this debate live. One, one radio network sent commentators like it was a prize fight or something. You know, there's a jab by the Christians, like the atheists on the rope. It's unbelievable. No kidding, the night of the debate came, traffic was gridlocked within two miles of our church. We opened the doors for our auditorium. People ran down the aisles to get a seat. When's the last time you saw someone run into a church? We had 7,778 people show up. We overflowed our auditorium. We had live closed circuit TV on other rooms on our campus. We had coast to coast radio about to go on the air and I'm gonna be the moderator. I'm pacing backstage, I'm nervous. And, and one of our elders came up to me and said, so Strobel, we are gonna win this, aren't we? <laughs> so the debate begins and I chose as our representative of Christianity, a resident of Atlanta, Georgia, who uh, I consider to be probably the finest defender of the faith in the world. Two earned PhDs, um, you may know his name, Dr. William Lane Craig. So he gets up, he gives the most powerful 25 minute summation of the evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity you've ever heard. And I wanted to cheer, but I'm the moderator, I had to be neutral. Thank you, Dr. Craig. And now the atheist, Professor Zindler. Yeah, good luck, buddy. So this guy, we I didn't want to get accused of picking a bad atheist. So I said, you choose your best guy. And they did. So he gets up. Nice guy. You know, I spent some time with him. Like him a lot. But he got up. And he was about to open his mouth. But we didn't tell him one thing. Not that he would have cared. But we didn't let him know that right where he was standing, underneath the platform was a room. And that room was filled for the entire two and a half hours of the debate with Christians who were praying that the case for Christ would go out with all his convicting power and the case for atheism would be recognized for the bankrupt philosophy that it is. And if you've seen the video of that debate, it's on YouTube, you can watch it. You know God answered that prayer because we have people vote. What's your spiritual condition when you came in? Who won the debate? What's your spiritual condition as you leave? 
Initially, we just took the ballots of people who came in as agnostics, as atheists, as skeptics. Just among that group, having heard the case for Christ and the case for atheism, over 82% said the case for Christ was by far the most compelling. 47 people walked in as confirmed atheists, heard both sides, and walked out as followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what else? Not one person became an atheist. I'm just saying. Friends, we as Christians have an unfair advantage in the marketplace of ideas. We have truth on our side. That's a big advantage. Um, so, so what's my takeaway? Therefore, let's all go out and debate people. No, no. There's some people who God gifts that as a ministry. Bill Craig is one of them, J.P. Moreland, Mike Lacona. There are some people, they've got PhDs, they're educated in this area. That's their ministry. I've organized those debates, I've moderated them, but I'm not a debater. You're probably not a debater. I think for you and me, the key word is not debate, it's dialogue, it's conversations, it's relationships, it's friendships. It's having an authentic relationship with someone who may be far from God and creating a safe place in that friendship where any question can be raised, where we validate them as people who matter to the Father, where we do more listening than we do talking, um, where we're not preaching at people, but we're having a conversation, two-way conversation where we respect the fact that we're on a journey. We're all on a journey. And maybe they're not the same place we are, that's okay. But maybe we could help them make some progress. You don't have to be the Bible answer man. You don't have to be the Bible answer lady. Um, sometimes the very best thing we can say if they raise a question we have no idea how to answer, the best thing is to be honest and say, that's a great question. I have no idea how to answer it. But let's find an answer together. And these days, there's all kinds of resources out there. You say, let's read a book together. And you can read a book together and discuss it because there's virtually a book on everything these days, right? Um, you can find a book to address whatever specific issue, whatever sticking point is holding up your friend in their journey toward God. Um, so I just think that in this age where we see increased skepticism toward faith in our culture, that it's incumbent on us when we love someone um, to listen, to help them, but above all, to respect them and to validate them as people who matter to the Father um, and help bring them answers to get them beyond that sticking point. I think if Jesus lived in my house, the door would always be open. Come on in, let's talk. One last thing I think if Jesus physically lived in my house is that above all else, he would be authentic in the way in which he related to his neighbors. He'd be authentic. In other words, he wouldn't just communicate the gospel, he would embody the gospel. What you see is what you get. There'd be a consistency between his beliefs and his behavior, between his character and his creed. And the question for us is, what do our neighbors see in us? Because I can virtually guarantee you something. If your neighbors or your colleagues at work or your friends at school or your fellow workers on the job site, if they know you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, I can virtually guarantee you they've got their radar scanning your life 24-7. You know they're watching you, right? 
What are they looking at you with? The hypocrisy radar. Beep, beep, beep. They're, they're watching you. What are they looking for? False piety. What are they looking for? Kind of a holier-than-thou attitude. What are they looking for? Someone who pastes on a phony Christian happy face and pretends like everything's always great when we know it's not. What do they see? I want to read you a bit of a letter I got from a a woman by the name of Maggie. She was a 24-year-old nurse, and she had been poisoned against God and against the church because when she was a little girl, she was abused by people who claimed to be Christians. Let let me read you what she wrote. She said, Lee, the Christianity I grew up with was so confusing to me, even as a child. People said one thing, but they did another. They appeared very spiritual in public, but in private, they were abusive. What they said and what they did never fit. There was such a discrepancy. So listen, I came to hate Christianity and did not want to be associated with the church. Friends, that is the power of inauthentic people to repel people from God. You know, Jesus used these metaphors of salt and light in a positive way, right? But the ugly truth is there are Christians who are like salt in a wound. They're like Christians who are like headlights on a highway that make you turn your head the other way because it's glaring at you. And that's what happened to Maggie. But then guess what happened to her? One day she's on her porch. She opens up the Chicago Tribune and she reads an article about a debate that was coming up at a church between an atheist and a Christian. The debate we did. And she said, I'm going to go to that debate because I want to see the Christian humiliated. So she came to our debate. Well, the Christian clearly won the debate. So now she's confused. So she'd write me, because I was a moderator, she'd write me these letters. Dear Lee, here are the first 10 reasons I don't believe in God. Boom, 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 boom. So I'd write her back. Dear Maggie, so glad you're asking these questions. These are totally legitimate. They're excellent questions. Let me see if I can help a little bit. So I would do that. But then I called her up. I said, Maggie, um, I love the fact that you're asking these questions, but I think maybe there's a better way to get answers. I said, we have in our church a thing called spiritual discovery groups made up of half a dozen people like you, Maggie, who don't believe in God, led by a Christian couple. And they go on a journey together. They meet maybe once a week for a couple of months. They talk about faith issues. And I said, if you want to join one of those groups, you can make some friends and you can get your questions answered over time. She said, that would be great. So she joined one of these groups. So I want to read to you another letter she wrote me after she was in this group for a while. Why? Because Jesus is telling all of us we salt and light to people like Maggie. And sometimes I think we wonder, what does that look like? What, what does she need from us? What's she looking for from us? Well, she says it so well, better than I could. I'll read you what she wrote me. She said, Lee, when I came to church into my small group, here's the first thing she needed. I needed gentleness. I needed to be able to ask any question. I needed to have my questions taken seriously. I needed to be treated with respect and validated. But most of all, listen, most of all, I just needed to see people whose actions match what they say. I'm not looking for perfect, but I am looking for real. Integrity is the word that comes to mind. I need to hear real people talk about real life, and I need to know if God is or can be a part of real life. Does he care about the wounds I have? Does he care that I need a place to live? Can I ever be a whole and a healthy person? I've asked questions like these of the two Christians who lead my group, and I've not been laughed at or ignored or invalidated. I've not been pushed or pressured in any way. 
And then she said, I don't understand the caring I've received from the two leaders of my group. I don't understand that they don't seem afraid of questions. They don't say things like, you just have to have faith. You just need to pray more. They don't seem to be afraid to tell who they really are. They just seem genuine. And then she sent me a copy of a poem that she wrote for the two leaders of her group. And from the first time I read this poem, I thought, no, no, no. This is a poem every follower of Jesus on planet Earth needs to hear. And I've read this poem to Christians all over the planet. Why? Because this is the unedited, raw, heart's cry of the very kind of people that Jesus loves so much that he died on the cross to save them. And he sends us into their life to share this message of hope and grace. So I want you to imagine, here's this 24-year-old nurse, poisoned against God in the church, who looks into your face as a follower of Jesus and says these words. Do you know, I mean, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? I mean, do you know? Do you understand that when you treat me with gentleness, it raises the question in my mind, well, Maybe he is gentle too. Maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I get hurt. But do you know? Do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh, that I think, well, what if Jesus is interested in me too? Do you know? Do you understand that when I hear you talk honestly about arguments and conflicts and scars from your past, that I think, well, Maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no good little girl who deserves abuse. If you care, then I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope that burns inside of me. And for a while, I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know? Do you understand that your words are his words? that your face is his face to someone like me. Please be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please let it be real this time, please. Do you know? Do you understand that you and you and you, that you represent Jesus to me? Well, I read that the first time in my office at the church and I cried because what flooded into my mind was not all the ways I've been like Jesus to people what flooded into my mind was the fact that I got a neighbor who lives a nine iron shot from my house who's headed for an eternity without Christ and I've been too busy doing the professional work of clergy to give a rip I said this got to stop so I called up Maggie I said Maggie thank you for that poem I found it very convicting And I think everybody should hear it, Maggie. I'm speaking this weekend at the church. I want to see, could I get your permission to read it? And she said, oh, Lee, haven't you heard? I said, no, Maggie. I mean, a heart dropped. I thought, great. What inauthentic Christian she met now to repel her again from God. I said, no, Maggie, I haven't heard. What happened? She said, no, it's a good thing. I said, what? She said, Lee, on Tuesday night, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I said, Maggie. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. But you got to answer a question for me. 
You were so far from God. You were running the other direction. What brought you across the line of faith? What five facts did you learn that convinced you that, that the resurrection is an actual event of history? It wasn't like that with me. See, yeah, yeah. What 10 facts did you learn that convinced you the Bible really is the word of God? See, it wasn't like that with me. Then what? What was it? Well, now she's kind of embarrassed, kind of shrugged over the phone. She said, well, Lee, I, I just met a whole bunch of people at church who were like Jesus to me. I thought, what a lesson. What a lesson to someone like me likes to pin somebody up against the wall. Don't like these 20 reasons for the resurrection. I'll give you 20 more. But keep in mind, she came to the debate. She heard a world-class scholar defend the evidence for Christianity. She heard a world-class scholar as an atheist defend atheism. She heard both sides. But what brought her across the line? I know the Christian couple that led her group. They are quiet, introverted, simple folks who love God and love people. They loved her into the kingdom of God. And you know what the good news about that is? We can do this. We can do it. You don't need a PhD to do this. We can pray for people. We can do that, right? We can dialogue with them. We can help them find answers to sticking points, holding up. We can do that. But the easiest thing of all is we don't have to pretend we're smarter than we are. We don't have to pretend we're more spiritual than we are. We can just be sinners saved by grace, be authentic in our faith, and God will take us on a series of unexpected adventures that'll be the joy of our lives. Um, and that, to me, it's like, why would we not want that in our lives? You know, I had the opportunity to interview one of the greatest evangelists of history right before he died. He was on his deathbed. His name is Luis Palau. He had shared his faith with a billion people during his lifetime. A tremendous man of God. He was a friend and a hero of mine. And I was with him before he died. And you know what he said to me? One of the last things he said, he looked at me and said, Lee, when you get to the end of your life and all is said and done, you will never regret being courageous for Christ. You'll never regret those moments when you chose to be courageous for Christ. That looks different for each one of us. But I want to be courageous for Christ. I bet you want to be courageous for Christ. Uh, to seize those opportunities, right? We can't do this in heaven. This is our one opportunity, right? To be able to do this. We, can, we can't do this um, when we get to heaven. So I'm gonna pray for you and ask God to give you an unexpected adventure. But before I do, I just wanna end real quick with one last story because it's my favorite unexpected adventure that God took me on. I was a new Christian. I was still editor at a newspaper in Chicago. I was packing up to go home one day and I felt the Holy Spirit in a very specific way nudging me to go into the business office of the newspaper and invite my atheist friend to come to Easter services at our church because Easter was coming up. And I thought, this is great. If God's nudging me to do this, he's probably gonna repent right now. It's gonna be awesome. So I had a lot of confidence. So I walk over to the business office. I walk in, I look around. All I see is my friend behind his desk. And thank you, Lord. So I went up to him. I said, how you doing? He said, I'm doing great. I said, you know, Easter's coming up. He said, Strobel, you know I'm an atheist. I don't observe Easter. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. But Easter's when we remember the resurrection of Jesus. He said, well, he wasn't resurrected. I said, well, actually, there's good evidence he was. I began to give him some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I went on for a while. 
And then I could see, man, maybe this wasn't the right approach. And so I kind of stepped back and I said, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you have any questions about God? He said, no. Oh, okay. Um, I said, do you ever think about God? He said, no. Oh, I said, well, wait a minute. You like music, right? He said, oh yeah, I love music. I said, why don't you and your wife come with Leslie and me to church on Easter? You'll love the music. He looked at me and said, I don't want to go to your stupid church. Hey, no problem. Listen, if you ever want to ask a question or whatever, you know where my desk is. I went out and I thought, what was that all about? Why did I feel so specifically compelled to go and invite him to Easter services, talk about the resurrection? I shared the gospel with him and so, and he just shut me down. And I'm telling you, this bothered me for years because to this day, he's an atheist. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. Several years later, by then I'm a pastor and a guy came up to me at church one day and he said, could I shake your hand and thank you for the spiritual influence you've had on my life? I said, it's real nice, but who are you? So let me tell you my story. A few years ago, I lost my job and I didn't have any money in the bank. I thought I was gonna lose my house. I thought I was gonna lose my car. I didn't know what to do. I needed a paycheck for a while to get by. So I called a friend of mine that runs a newspaper and I said, do you have any odd jobs I can do to earn a buck for a while? And the guy at the newspaper said, well, can you tile floors? I said, yeah, I've tiled our bathroom. I can tile floors. He said, we need some tile installed and repaired at the, at the newspaper. If you can do that for a while, we can pay you. So he, I said, great. He said, I went to work at the newspaper. He said, one day, not long before Easter, I was in the business office of the newspaper. I was on my hands and knees working on the tile on the floor behind a big desk. And you walked in. I didn't even think you knew I was there. And you start talking to this guy about God. And you start talking about the evidence for the resurrection. And you start inviting him to church. And this guy was shutting you down. But I'm on my hands and knees listening to all this stuff and my heart's beating fast and I'm thinking, I need God. As soon as you left, I called my wife. I said, we're going to church this Easter. She said, what? I said, yeah. He said, we came to your church at Easter. I came to faith. My wife came to faith and our teenage son came to faith. And I just wanted to thank you. And I'm thinking... This is a new form of evangelism, ricochet evangelism. You share your faith, it bounces off a hard heart. You don't know where it's gonna go. Friends, this is the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. You don't wanna miss this stuff. We can't do it in heaven. This is our one opportunity. So let me pray for you that God will take you between now and Easter on an unexpected adventure. Let's pray. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.